This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in this hour, Donald Trump and the rest of us after Charlottesville, Harold Meyerson has a to-do list. We'll also talk about the fight against big oil and big money in one city, Richmond, California. Steve Early will tell that story. First up, Joshua Green on Steve Bannon, the white nationalist in the White House. Trump Watch starts right now. The person in the White House who is happy about Donald Trump's support for white nationalists after Charlottesville, just about the only person, is Steve Bannon, the former head of Breitbart News, who currently holds the title White House Chief Strategist. So we turn to Joshua Green. Of course, he's the go-to guy on Steve Bannon. He's senior national correspondent for Bloomberg Businessweek. He previously has worked at The Atlantic and the Boston Globe. He's written for The New Yorker, Esquire, and Rolling Stone. He's been everywhere lately. MSNBC, Meet the Press, on Bill Maher a couple of weeks ago. His indispensable number one best-selling book is called Devil's Bargain. Steve Bannon, Donald Trump, and the storming of the presidency. We reached him today in midtown Manhattan, just blocks from Trump Tower. Joshua Green, welcome. Great to be with you. Well, a uh, couple of big questions we want to ask you. First, how does Donald Trump view Steve Bannon today? It was hard to miss that statement Trump made at that now a legendary news conference at Trump Tower on Tuesday where Trump said, quote, we'll see what happens with Mr. Bannon, close quote. How did that sound to you? Well, it sounded to me like Trump was, was, was indicating two things at once. On the one hand, we know that Trump is furious at the idea put forward in the press, and frankly, that's also the thesis of my book, uh, which is that Bannon was really the architect of his of his electoral victory, and that were it not for Bannon's uh, politics and guidance, Donald Trump probably wouldn't be president. Trump hates to share the credit, uh, wants all glory to reflect on himself personally, and is annoyed that Bannon is viewed as being, uh, as Time Magazine put it, the great manipulator. So I think he was putting Bannon in his place to an extent, because the language that Trump used used in that press conference uh, about how Steve didn't come on to the campaign until very late and so on, uh, was the same thing that he said back in February uh, when Bannon was being given credit for uh, winning the election by Time magazine and where Saturday Night Live was uh, hilariously uh, portraying Bannon as the real president and making Donald Trump sit at the little boy's desk. Uh, we, we know that Trump hates that sort of thing. So on the one hand, he seemed cool toward, toward Bannon and was clear about you know, who was the primary actor in that relationship. On the other hand, while what I thought was interesting was he said, Steve Bannon is a good guy, he's not a racist, and, and essentially defended Bannon from the charges being uh, levied at him by people who were critical of the White House's response to the Charlottesville attack. Uh, and I think Trump shares Bannon's view that uh, they shouldn't have to condemn and single out white nationalists and Nazis for criticism, and that, oh, look, there were all these other people uh, being violent, and there are many sides to blame. That's Bannon's view of this, and I think the fact that Trump has so willingly embraced it suggests that, while he may not like Bannon's uh, spotlight sometimes, he basically agrees with Bannon's political views. 
As you said, it's the thesis of your uh, book, Devil's Bargain, that uh, Steve Bannon was the mastermind of Trump's victory. That's, I believe, your words. Uh, what, uh, uh, what's your evidence for this? Well, two things, really. I mean, I think there were two things Bannon did that were probably decisive. Uh, in, in getting Trump elected. Number one is, Bannon is really the guy that introduced this brand of hard-right nationalist politics. And at least in, in a campaign context, this had elements of economic populism that I think uh, appealed to people who feel as though they've been left behind in the economy by both parties. Um, Trump has done nothing to act on that as president, but in the campaign, uh, he made a fairly compelling sales pitch uh, that he was going to, and those ideas are Bannon's ideas. Uh, and I think, I think Bannon was very good at getting Trump uh, focused and making this argument, this idea that there is this vast cabal of forces and politics and banking and Wall Street that are working against the little guy, the average voter, that turned out to be a very effective message. The other thing that doesn't get nearly as much attention that Bannon did was he, he himself was the mastermind of a series of interlocking conservative groups that spent years in the run-up to the election uh, plotting ways to damage and tear down Hillary Clinton, uh, who everybody... I think, expected to be the Democratic nominee in 2016. And so when you get to August of 2016, when Steve Bannon took over Donald Trump's campaign, uh, not only was Clinton a damaged candidate, thanks to what Bannon and, and his allies had done in the years leading up to that, uh, but now you had Bannon in Trump's ear every day, guiding him on his politics and offering specific lines of attack against Clinton that Bannon understood better than practically anybody else in the country. As we can all see, that wound up being uh, surprisingly effective. So what, what are you saying here about how Bannon views Trump? Is, is uh, Bannon, you know, cynically using Trump to achieve his, the dystopian vision he's had for more than a decade? Or, or, or is he kind of a true believer that... Uh, you know, Trump. Trump is our leader, and and uh, and that's the that's the future of America that he hopes for. I don't think that Bannon distinguishes between the two things. I think he's certainly a true believer in Trump, but he's also somebody who believes that Trump can be the vehicle for his political ideas. And, and, and in fact, that Trump might be really the only vehicle for his political ideas because if you would never have a Jeb Bush or a Marco Rubio or any kind of mainstream Republican candidate who would go anywhere near a guy like Steve Bannon, who, who had a toxic reputation before he was involved with Trump, um, by virtue of his association with Breitbart News. Uh, and on top of that, Bannon's political ideas uh, really cut against a lot of what the mainstream movement Republican Party professes to believe in, tax cuts for, for, for high-end earners, uh, an aggressive foreign policy that tries to impose democracy by force. The whole litany of uh, Republican policy goals are not necessarily ones that Bannon shares. And so I don't think he really has a candidate or a home in the party, or at least he didn't in 2016, other than Donald Trump. And uh, what do you say to the view, which I've seen many places recently, that uh, Trump uh, would get rid of Bannon at this point, and that's certainly what he's hinting at when he says, we'll see what happens with Mr. Bannon, but he won't because he's afraid of him. He's afraid of what Bannon might do if he were outside, 
and free to uh, to oppose Trump. What do you think about that view? You know, I don't know what Donald Trump actually thinks about Steve Bannon, whether he worries that Bannon could turn against him and undercut his base, but I do know that Trump is absolutely infatuated with his hardcore group of, of, of supporters and very badly wants not to lose them. Um, it, it seems like a million years ago now, but if you flash back a year and a half, the only thing Trump really ever talked about in a public setting uh, was his poll numbers. And I had, I had a long interview with him for the book, and you know, going through the tape of that interview, about 80% of what came out of his mouth was, was bragging about his poll numbers. It, it, a lot of it wasn't very useful to the book, uh, but it goes to show you how carefully and closely attuned Trump is to his own standing. Well, his standing right now is lousy. It's yeah. in the mid-30s. And the people that have stuck by him are the kind of people that look at Steve Bannon as being an important political leader, an influence on Trump, somebody who authentically believes in this idea of populist nationalism. So Trump doesn't strike me as a guy who gives a lot of forethought to most of what he does. He tends to react viscerally and emotionally, and so I wouldn't be surprised if he got angry at Bannon if he fired him. Um, but I do think that one consequence of that would be uh, that Bannon would continue this crusade from the outside. And I don't know that he would attract, attack Donald Trump personally or directly, but Bannon would not hesitate to go after people like Gary Cohn and Stephen Mnuchin and Jared Kushner, who he views as being uh, globalists, Bannon's great pejorative term, who inhibit Trump from following the nationalist agenda that Bannon would like him to follow. And, and, and that, that campaign waged from the outside could potentially be even more divisive than the one Bannon is waging right now on the inside. You know, we were all, uh, I think, stunned is the right uh, word here when Bannon called Robert Kuttner of the American Prospect uh, two days ago, out of the blue, apparently, uh, mostly to to talk about his um, plans for his campaign for a trade war uh, with China, but uh, Robert Kuttner did ask him about the racist violence in Charlottesville over the weekend, and I was I was surprised. I think everybody was surprised at what Steve Bannon had to say. He dismissed the far right as irrelevant. He said, "Quote: Ethno nationalism." It's losers. It's a fringe element. We got to help crush it, you know, help crush it more. And he concluded, these guys are a collection of clowns, uh, close quote. Uh, aren't these the people who read Breitbart and who voted for Trump and who Steve Bannon is supposed to be the world's expert in mobilizing? Yes, and this is this, this is another sign that, that this is a conversation Bannon thought was off the record. He said similar things to me. I actually went back in my notes to Kuttner in, in the prospect interview. He, I think he called them clowns. Yeah. To me, he called them freaks and goofballs. Uh, but but basically, the upshot is that Bannon views these kind of alt right internet trolls as useful idiots who he can manipulate to do his bidding through the kinds of stories he runs on Breitbart News. Uh, or by you know signaling or having Trump signal that on some level he supports his agenda by doing things like refusing to come out and immediately condemn in no uncertain terms uh, the kind of neo-Nazi white supremacist violence we saw in Charlottesville. But I don't think Bannon has a very high personal regard for them. I think he sees them as 
an, an energy, you know, a, a small but but powerful and energetic cohort that will help him tear down uh, the Republican political establishment and open up room for Donald Trump, and also uh, a group of people who won't hesitate to attack the mainstream media, which is another obsession of Steve Bannon's. If you've just tuned in, we're speaking with Joshua Green. We're talking about Steve Bannon. Of course, Joshua Green has uh, written the number one best-selling book about Steve Bannon. It's called Devil's Bargain. Uh, what I your book is a wonderful history of who, where Bannon came from, and it's such a wild story. Um, one of the most puzzling chapters is that he worked at Goldman Sachs for five years. He sure doesn't seem like a Goldman Sachs guy today, and he he doesn't dress like one. I have to say, uh, no. And and, and ban- I got to say, Bannon's sartorial style is one of the oddest things about him. I've never quite been able to figure out. Now, he's a guy who grew up, he went to uh, a right-wing military high school, he wore a uniform, he was in the Navy, he wore a uniform, he was a banker, he wore nice suits, and then he got rich and I think just decided uh, as a way of kind of giving a, a middle finger to the whole world that he was going to start wearing cargo shorts and flip-flops and not shaving and basically looking like a flea bag who lives on a park bench. I mean, it was, it was one of the things that was oddly endearing about him when I first met him, the idea that this, this guy lives and travels through Washington and cares so little, um, you know, about, about, about common political courtesies that he, that he dressed and act this way. It made him a wonderful, uh, you know, character for the magazine profile I did of him, that w- which predated the book. Um, but, but it's very odd that, that someone like that would wind up in the inner circle of someone like Trump who is such a stickler for appearance and good dressing. We all remember that he, he famously dressed down Sean Spicer, his slovenly press secretary, <laughs> for wearing ill-fitting suits, and Spicer had to hustle out and go find a tailor. And That, that hasn't really happened with Bannon. You know, he, he, he's thankfully put on long pants instead of shorts that he used to wear. Um, but he still looks like somebody who sleeps on a park bench. And what about the Goldman Sachs years? Was was he a true believer of Goldman in investment banking during his Goldman Sachs years? Yeah, you know, I think he was. He landed at Goldman right in the eighties, at the middle of the leveraged buyout boom, where you had these corporate raiders like Michael Milken attacking all the big banks. Bannon worked for Goldman, which. Uh, did not like the corporate raiders. And the work Bannon did was essentially defensive. Uh, Goldman and Bannon worked for the companies who were under attack by Milken. But I talked for Bannon to, to Bannon for the book about this period in his life, and it was clear that his heart was really with Michael Milken. That he wanted to be on the other side. That he wanted to be the you know insurgent going after the fattened establishment bankers. And if you if you look at his career after that, he went out to Hollywood and he kind of did movies. But he he really likes putting himself in the role of being the outsider storming the fortress. Uh, so I think I think Goldman, in a sense, was one of the few times in which he was on the other on the establishment side of things, and evidently didn't like it very much because that's not where he's landed afterwards. So I learned from your book. First of all, there's five years at Goldman Sachs, and then then there was his period of uh, working with online networks of gamers, kind of the opposite of the Goldman Sachs investment bankers. How did that happen? Well, I mean, Bannon has the weirdest, most peripatetic career of anybody I've ever encountered in politics, but he went from Goldman to Hollywood uh, and 
had his own investment bank, which he sold to the French bank Société Générale, uh, which made him rich. And afterwards, he wound up in Hong Kong as the CEO of a gaming company that didn't actually make video games. Um, what it did was pioneer a practice called gold farming, where you hire low-age workers to play these uh, massive multiplayer games like World of Warcraft and win weapons and armor that Bannon's company then turned around and sold to uh, gamers in the real world for real money. And there was enough of them uh, around the world that he was able, his company was able to make millions of dollars doing this uh, for a year or two. But then what happened is the, the, the rest of the gamers who considered this cheating organized themselves on online message boards where they tended to congregate and put so much pressure on the video game makers to uh, block Bannon's practices that it basically bankrupted Bannon's company. And he took a lesson from this, which is interesting. He decided that these online gamers could be a really powerful force when motivated to act collectively. So when he wound up at Breitbart News about five years later, uh, he conspired to bring them over into the political realm by hiring as Breitbart's tech editor a guy named Milo Yiannopoulos, uh, who has since become a very uh, famous Internet troll and conservative provocateur. Yeah. Uh, but at the time was Breitbart's tech editor, wrote a lot about gaming and brought these people from the message boards, from 4chan, into Breitbart, and really helped open the floodgates of the alt-right into national politics. Well, it's remarkable that we have a president who can't condemn a Nazi march, but we also have a White House chief strategist uh, who's been called uh, the Lenny Riefenstahl of the Tea Party movement. That's a quote from Andrew Breitbart uh, himself talking about the early, the, the pre-Trump era in in. Uh, 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 Steve Bannon's life. I uh, I wanted to ask what you thought about the sworn statement of Mary Louise Picard. I know this is not really a big part of your book, but this is the ex-wife of uh, Steve Bannon who declared in a sworn statement, uh, ev provided evidence that Bannon is a, a, a an anti-Semite there. The wife said, and this is part of the divorce proceedings, in her sworn statement, she said she'd enrolled their daughters at a private school for girls when he was in Hollywood called the Archer School. It's on Sunset Boulevard in Brentwood. I drive past it every week. The ex-wife declared that Bannon said, quote, the bigness, biggest problem he had with Archer is the number of Jews that attend this is his ex-wife saying, he said he doesn't like Jews and that he doesn't like the way they raise their kids to be, quote, whiny brats, and he didn't want his girls going to school with Jews, close quote. What do you think about that? Well, it, it, it is certainly damning. And if, if listeners want to find this whole thing, Connie Brook, a writer at The New Yorker, did a long profile of Bannon. Uh, that documented all of this stuff. I didn't get into it in the book a ton because I didn't think it really factored in the presidential campaign. Yeah. But, it's but it's certainly, um, uh, you know, deeply concerning evidence that Bannon's moral character is m more flawed than um, 
well, I was going to say more flawed than we might imagine, but but I think a lot of us imagine that it's <laughs> pretty bad. To begin it's with. pretty bad. Uh, he, he, you know, I, I asked him about these anti-Semitism charges in the book, and he kind of shrugged it off. And you know, his his claim is that he is not anti-Semitic. That a lot of the people, Andrew Breitbart, uh, Breitbart News' CEO Larry Soloff, and many of the staff and employees of Breitbart are Jewish. Uh, and what's more, Ben and told me he's a big Israel hawk. So. Uh, he, he, he rejects the charge on the one hand. On the other hand, if you look at the kind of people that Breitbart has brought into politics, if you look at the people marching in Charlottesville, uh, and Bannon obviously uh, has encouraged this and has encouraged Trump's position on this debate, um, he has certainly, I think, inarguably made common cause with a lot of these anti-Semites for political gain. Uh, and at the end of the day, I don't know that that's any better than being an actual anti-Semite. Uh, you know, so so this has been uh, one of the most, uh, I, I think, worrisome areas of the Trump-Bannon brand of politics, the idea that, you know, they're either winking or signaling, or in the case of Charlottesville, I think almost actively encouraging uh, the participation in our politics of a group of people who most people in both parties think should be written out of uh, written out of our politics and written out of polite society. One more question: What do you think it's like to be Steve Bannon right now? On the one hand, if you look at his call to Bob Kuttner, he seems to be flying high. On the other hand, the the mainstream media discourse is that his days may well be numbered. What do you think it's like to be Steve Bannon right now? I think it's the same as it always is. You know, you're in the center of this maelstrom. You're fighting for your job. You're sowing chaos and trying to deal with it all at once. I, I think that's the role where Bannon is most comfortable. Uh, and I, I don't know how it's going to end for him, whether he'll survive this latest kerfuffle or whether this will finally be the episode that gets him axed from the White House. But as you could tell from the Kushner call, I mean, the entire political world is on fire over Charlottesville and the president's reaction and the fallout from it. You know, and here Steve Bannon is making uh, <laughs> unsolicited phone calls to, to liberal academics and thinkers to talk about China and trade policy. I think it shows you that, that he, on some level, he's impervious to the chaos that he creates and, and just sort of follows his mind wherever he thinks it's interesting. Um, but but one thing I learned doing a book about Bannon is it's almost impossible to predict what he's going to do and where he's going to be coming from. Uh, he, he's, he's such a strange and odd figure. Uh, and I think that's one of the things that uh, attracted Trump to him. This is a guy who is different than anybody else I'm going to encounter in politics and can help me. Joshua Green, his book is Devil's Bargain, Steve Bannon, Donald Trump, and the Storming of the Presidency. Josh, thanks so much for talking with us today. You bet. It was my pleasure. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK with Trump Watch and the Trump Watch podcast. Next up, the fruits of 15 years of successful community organizing in Richmond, California. That's in a minute on KPFK when Trump Watch continues. <laughs> It's 
the same old story. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, streaming at kpfk.org and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Later in this hour, Harold Meyerson has a to-do list for progressives. But first, the story of an urban resistance movement that is successfully challenging the myth that corporate power and gentrification are inevitable. Richmond, California. For that, we turn to Steve Early. He's been an organizer, a lawyer, union rep, a labor activist, and book author for decades. His new book is called Refinery Town, Big Oil, Big Money, and the Remaking of an American City. It includes a foreword by Bernie, our Bernie. Today, we reach Steve Early, not in Richmond, California, but in Huntington, Vermont. Steve Early, welcome to the program. John, thanks for having me on the show. Richmond, California, Huntington, Vermont, both of these are Bernie Sanders country, aren't they? Uh, they are. Um, I'm actually just down the road from uh, Richmond, Vermont, and uh, as you know, this is Bernie country, um, and been meeting actually in the last few days with members of the Vermont Progressive Party, the wonderful, successful third party that's grown up here in Vermont in the wake of Bernie's uh, 30 or 35 years of successful electoral campaigning. You know, Vermont's the only uh, state in the country at the moment with a progressive independent uh, serving as lieutenant governor, Dave Zuckerman, elected last fall with Bernie's support. And there's actually a functioning third party caucus in the state legislature. There's uh, nine progressives, three state senators, and six members of the House. So wow. if you want to see a successful third party in operation, uh, spend your summer vacation in Vermont. <laughs> well, let's talk about Richmond, California, uh, before, before and after. Let's start with Richmond before the Progressive Alliance went to work. It was a Chevron town. Yeah. Uh, Richmond, for those who aren't familiar with the uh, geography of the, the Bay Area in California, is... Uh, across the bay from San Francisco and just up the East Bay from the better-known cities of Berkeley and Oakland. Um, for more than 110 years, it's been an oil refining town um, dominated by the company known today as Chevron. Originally, it was Standard Oil of California. And uh, big oil in Richmond has long been the city's uh, largest taxpayer, biggest employer, biggest philanthropist, uh, wielded enormous uh, political and economic uh, influence for decades, and of course was a major polluter of the air and the water and the politics. And so you were there. You were you were there in 2012 when the Chevron plant in Richmond had a level three incident. Is is level three a good level? Uh, it is not. No, as a refinery neighbor, I can tell you that when uh, Big Oil is having a bad hair day in the uh, <laughs> East Bay, it's pretty bad. Uh, we had a catastrophic uh, pipe failure that day. It led to a, a fire, a huge uh, towering column of toxic smoke that extended out over the whole area. 15,000 people were forced to seek medical attention. Uh, took four hours to put the fire out, and it really was a testament to a long-standing pattern of the company putting production and profit ahead of workplace safety, environmental protection, and community health. Uh, the city has sued Chevron for damages over this. The company was fined. There's been a major effort over the last four and a half years to strengthen refinery safety rules in response to this catastrophic event. So there's this 
institution now called the Richmond Progressive Alliance. It's, as you say in, in your book, Refinery Town, it's managed to unite liberal Democrats, socialists, independents, the Greens, and the Peace and Freedom Party. How did they do that? Yeah, we should get some sort of special award for that, don't yeah, you Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, I, as I described in the book, uh, 12, 13 years ago, uh, various activists in Richmond, uh, with that uh, spectrum of political opinion, uh, and pursuing often in very siloed fashion uh, particular single issues, decided they would be more effective, have more impact, have more influence, particularly at the municipal level. They formed uh, a common organization, um, a membership organization that would organize around issues year-round, but also run candidates for local office. And they set aside some political differences about bigger picture questions, came up with a, an agenda for municipal reform that was very ambitious, but has largely been accomplished over the last decade and a half. And uh, since 2004, when the Progressive Alliance first started running candidates for council and mayor, they've won 10 um, out of 16 uh, races, which is a pretty good one-loss percentage for progressives in our country. Especially considering uh, the forces arrayed against them. Yeah. Um, in the last three election cycles, um, we've seen 7 to $8 million worth of spending by uh, Big Soda, Big Oil, uh, last fall, the landlord lobby. Uh, there's been a huge amount of corporate spending in Richmond to try to uh, defeat and discredit uh, progressive candidates uh, and to elect business-friendly candidates. And it's failed because of the strength of the grassroots movement that's been built. There's now a progressive supermajority of five council members out of seven on the Richmond City Council. So you said the Richmond Progressive Alliance has some impressive accomplishments. What are the, what are the biggest ones? Well, um, going back... Uh, to uh, 2004, uh, when our uh, later uh, Green Mayor, Gail McLaughlin, was first elected, um, the city was a pioneering sanctuary city. Um, it was one of the first cities to really take the lead in establishing an effective uh, a program of uh, community policing that's reduced civilian homicides and officer-involved shootings and made uh, the streets uh, much safer for uh, a community that's 80% non-white, 110,000 people, predominantly people of color, poor and working class, where there had been in the past serious problems with uh, gun violence and cr uh, criminal activity by youth gangs. Uh, we've raised the minimum wage, uh, increased taxation of Chevron, um, challenged home foreclosures, and last fall most significantly enacted uh, rent control. Uh, Richmond's now one of the first California cities in 30 years to re to introduce rent regulation, roll back rents, created uh, the requirement of just cause before landlords can evict tenants, uh, created a rent board, and limited future uh, rent increases in Richmond to those tenants that are covered uh, to the overall uh, increase uh, in the consumer price uh, index. So a big change from just a few years ago, uh, a few months ago, when Richmond uh, landlords were free to raise rents as, as high as they uh, wanted to. Uh, now, for those who could not pay the rent. For those of us who remember Richmond of 10 years ago, the idea that there would be a gentrification crisis that would require rent control is pretty startling. It was, there was a foreclosure crisis in, in Richmond not too long ago. Yes, when, when there was a national uh, foreclosure crisis, the, 
uh, Richmond uh, progressives uh, came up with a very innovative response. Unfortunately, it was not successful. It was tremendous industry uh, counter-campaigning against it. The idea was to use the city's powers of eminent domain uh, to block foreclosures, to try to put pressure on lenders uh, to renegotiate the terms of, of home mortgage loans. Richmond had a lot of homes uh, that were being abandoned because people were being forced to uh, give up their mortgages and, and leave. Um, uh, the focus recently has been, as I mentioned, on tenants' rights and trying to get uh, protection uh, for uh, mainly black, Latino, and Asian uh, tenants uh, who are coming under pressure from larger Bay Area gentrification forces, uh, people of color, working-class people, have been forced out of San Francisco. They fled to Oakland. Now they're being priced out of Oakland, and, uh, you know, they're coming into Richmond. But to keep it an inclusive, diverse city, we have to have more affordable housing and the interim protection of rent control. If you've just tuned in, we're speaking with Steve Early uh, about Richmond, California, his book, Refinery Town, tells the story of how a progressive movement has transformed what had been a company town. The book has a foreword by Senator Bernie Sanders. Uh, you mentioned Gail McLaughlin, the green, former mayor, uh, Green Party mayor. Tell us about Gail McLaughlin. Well, uh, it, after two years on the city council from 2004 to 2006, Gail uh, ran for mayor uh, against all odds, uh, won an upset victory, and, and for the next eight years made Richmond the largest city in the country with a green mayor. She helped elect other progressives uh, to the city council. She seated boards and commissions with uh progressive-minded people, really was a catalyst for, for fundamental change in the city. And now she's uh, taking the Richmond story statewide. She's uh, running as an independent progressive candidate for lieutenant governor of California, and I think getting a very good initial response. So you say she's running as an independent progressive candidate. That means she left the Green Party. Why, why was that? Uh, you know, I think the reality is, and she recognized this, there was not that much to leave. There's some dedicated, hardcore green activists doing good stuff at the local level, including enrichment. The party structure itself um, has not grown and become stronger in recent years. So I think her uh, thinking is that running as a Bernie-style, Bernie-inspired, independent progressives, as Bernie has done here in Vermont successfully since he was elected mayor of Burlington in 1981, is a better model. And uh, she hopes to draw dissident black and Latino Democrats, um, progressives inspired by Bernie's campaign, uh, Greens, Peace and Freedom Party members, independents, uh, all kinds of people who want to support a candidate who's running corporate free, is not going to take business donations, and is going to use the job of a lieutenant governor not to raise $17 million in the last three years from wealthy donors, which is what Gavin Newsom has done to become mm -hmm. the new Jerry Brown, but to use it as a bully pulpit for, for tax reform, for single-payer uh, health care, and for greater environmental protection for the people of California. In, in Bernie Sanders' foreword to your book, Refinery Town, he says, quote, to change United States politics, we need more cities like Richmond. Uh, what can cities learn from Richmond? What are the lessons for the rest of us? Well, I think progressives at the local level can accomplish a lot. There's definitely structural limitations on, on what they can do in a spreading conservative bipartisan preemption movement where state legislatures and and the federal government are trying to uh, prevent uh, cities from being innovative and developing progressive policy initiatives. Uh, 
that said, by networking through groups like Our Revolution, through the Working Families Party, through People's Action, there's a lot that progressives can do winning elective office at the local level. I was just in Texas a couple of weeks ago covering the National Conference of Local Progress, which now has 600 members, uh, wow. elected members of school boards, city councils, uh, county supervisory boards, mayors, uh, from cities of all sizes around the country, uh, an explosive uh, membership growth of an organization that acts as a clearinghouse uh, for promoting progressive municipal policies and reforms. And I think the growth of that network is a testament to the what's been inspired by Bernie's campaign and the realization that in the era of Trump, you know, going down ballot, going local, um, is one of the most viable strategies we have for building for the future. So if a badly scarred industrial city, long distant dismissed by its upscale neighbors, can undergo a municipal renaissance, why not the rest of us? Steve Early's new book with a foreword by Bernie Sanders is titled Refinery Town, Big Oil, Big Money, and the Remaking of an American City. Thank you, Steve. Thanks for having me on, John. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, and this is Trump Watch. Next up, today's Washington Report with Harold Meyerson. That's in a minute on KPFK when Trump Watch continues. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Coming up at 4 tonight on KPFK, this is happening Jerry quickly. But first, today in Washington with Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's executive editor of the American Prospect and a regular contributor to the L.A. Times op-ed page and other publications. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. So what's new at the American Prospect these days? <laughs> well, um, uh, yes, uh, was it yesterday? Uh, yeah, uh, 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 Tuesday, around Tuesday. the time of Trump's uh, idiotic press conference, uh, my colleague Bob Kuttner, the one of the three founding editors of the American Prospect, uh, got an email uh, from an intern working for Steve Bannon saying, uh, Bannon would like to uh, meet with you. And Bob said, well, I'm on vacation in uh, western Massachusetts, but if he wants to call, okay. And uh, Steve Bannon called Bob, which was a great surprise uh, mainly to Bob, uh, (laughs) since, uh, among other things, Bannon was reacting to part of a column that that Bob had put online uh, that day, uh, saying uh, there were, you know, real problems with our trade policy with China, a point on which uh, various people on the left and the right, I think, can agree. Uh, the rest of the column completely trashed Donald Trump, but uh, Bannon didn't bring that up. That didn't seem to be his concern. He uh, uh, started talking about China. He started talking about his enemies in the administration. Uh, when Bob pressed him on, uh, you know, the Charlottesville uh, murder and the white nationalists, Bannon sort of poo-pooed them as if he'd had nothing to do with them. It was a bizarre 25-minute phone call, and Bannon had never said this is uh, off the record. He just started talking to a guy who had been a journalist for 40 years. Uh, 
And uh, Bob uh, wrote a piece, uh, which I edited, uh, uh, and we put it online uh, about 24 hours ago. Uh, I don't know where it is trafficking now, but as of four hours ago, it it had had 500,000 <laughs> uh, unique visitors. And which, is that more than usual for the American prospect? Yeah, there have been some six-month periods <laughs> where we haven't gotten 500,000 unique visitors, truth be told. Uh, so, uh, this was, this was a bit much, uh, we, and, uh, Bob has since been on, uh, uh, CNN and NPR and Lord knows what else, uh, and there are, uh, stories on the homepages of, uh, the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Wall Street Journal about, uh, about all of this as well. So, uh, yeah, we're, uh, we're we're seeing a definite uh, uptick in in interest today uh and uh, we still haven't figured out exactly what the hell Steve Bannon was thinking when he decided to call Bob Cutner who had obviously not only not requested an interview but had never the thought of talking to Steve Bannon had actually never entered his head uh, well this until is Steve Bannon called this uh, this was uh shortly after uh, Trump uh, told the media, quote, we'll see what happens with Mr. Bannon, close quote, which a lot of people took as a sign that his days as the White House chief strategist were limited. I guess what you do when you're worried about keeping your job with Trump is you call the American prospect and get them behind you. It, it, it could be. Uh, I, I know uh, One of the other things he did in the interview was uh, say, oh, don't take, you know, Trump's talk about Korea seriously, yeah. you know, I mean, that would be a disaster, we're not going to do it. Uh, so the American prospect could be also a back channel between the Trump administration <laughs> and uh, North Korea, which we hadn't realized either uh, until, uh, until this, this, this phone call, sort of like the role John Scully played an ABC White House uh, foreign White House correspondent covering the State Department at the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis. So uh, here we are uh, in between <laughs> Exciting. Korea and the Trump White House, too. So it's, all, it's all really quite surprising. Exciting days. Uh, you referred yeah. briefly to what uh, Bannon uh, told the American prospect about the uh, the neo-fascist and, and uh, white nationalist uh, demonstrators in Charlottesville. Let me quote from Bob Kuttner's report, Bannon said, quote, ethno-nationalism, it's losers. It's a fringe element. I think the media plays it up too much, and we got to help crush it, you know, help crush it more. These guys are a collection of clowns, close quote, Steve Bannon. Now, I thought that the the uh, ethno-nationalists were the base of Steve Bannon's movement, the people who he had devoted his last decade to mobilizing to make Trump president. What's what's going on here? Yeah, this is exactly uh, the audience he both was addressing and, and sought to build and sought to incite uh, at Breitbart. Uh, there's no question about it. Uh, so I, 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 the, the, there's a, a possibility that, you know, when he lets his hair down, uh, this is what he really th- thinks about them, which is not, you know, um, it doesn't necessarily run counter to uh, a cynical belief that you need to mobilize them, yeah. uh, which, which I think is there. He also, though, apparently, uh, uh, later on, Bannon gave an interview to the British uh, news, 
excuse me, the British newspaper, the Daily Mail. And uh, at that point, he said, well, he, meant, he actually meant this to be... Uh, uh, meant this to be recorded, and um, he did it uh, to, to, you know, distract from Trump's uh, press conference, um, you know, so that and it would actually runs counter to some of the things Trump said. I'm not so sure that that's true, uh, because among other things, the email that was sent to Bob Kuttner requesting uh, the uh, uh, interview with Bob preceded the press conference. On the other hand, it's quite uh-huh. possible that Bannon knew yeah. what Trump was going to say in the press conference. Yeah. So, you know, the, the, this cuts a multiplicity of ways. The Daily Mail, uh, uh, so going from the American Prospect to the Daily Mail, how does the circulation of the Daily Mail compare to the American Prospect? It exceeds it. <laughs> uh, uh, I, will, I will grant that it exceeds it, although in terms of, um, you know, uh, visitors to the website today, it probably doesn't. <laughs> I think the Daily Mail has something like the largest circulation of any English-language daily publication in the history of the world or something like that. It's a tap- we're, we're, we're down the list a little. We're, we're a little lower on the list than, than they are. I'll, I'll, so, I'll acknowledge that. On, on the other hand, it's also, I doubt that it's, uh, you know, has uh, that, the, that Trump cares about them as much as he cares about the New York Times. So that that part is a little puzzling, too. Many puzzles. Um, Bannon also told your Bob Kuttner, the longer the Democrats talk about identity politics, I got them. I want them to talk about racism every day. If the left is focused on race and identity and we go with economic nationalism, we can crush the Democrats, close quote. I wonder if you have any comment on that. Well, I mean, you know, if you take it to its extreme, it's, it's, it's basically right. I mean, uh, let's assume, you know, I mean, if you look back at the 2016 election, Trump ran on both racism, uh, white racism, and economic nationalism. Yeah. Hillary Clinton's uh, economics were pretty darned unclear, and Trump won. So, you know, that's the kind of thing that Bannon could uh, extrapolate out of the 2016 experience when he was then as presumably now still the chief strategist for Donald Trump. Um, so um, it, it certainly, uh, you know, obviously the Democrats uh, can't and shouldn't and likely won't, uh, uh, you know, stop talking about uh, racial injustice, which is pervasive. But they damn well better get a plausible economic program, uh, which, uh, you know, they're only kind of, uh, you know, beginning to do. I believe that this week was infrastructure week for the Trump White House <laughs> and, yes. that the, and that the Trump Tower press conference was to, was to push infrastructure week. And that's why the Secretary of the Treasury, uh, Stephen Mnuchin, was standing next to him. But what and happened to Secretary inf- And the Secretary of Transportation, and Elaine the, Chow, who was also... Uh, Mrs. Mitch McConnell. Uh, so what happened? I, what what happened to Infrastructure Week? Damn good question. Uh, well, I mean, I, someone today observed that in seeking to keep, uh, you know, the Confederate statues standing. Well, in a certain sense, Confederate statues are infrastructure. <laughs> I mean, you know, so, Excellent point. So it 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 may live on in 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 that warped uh, 
and uh, d- deformed uh, form, actually, so, Infrastructure Week. <laughs> the, the, the other big news of the last couple of days is that corporate CEOs have been quitting Trump's advisory panels. What did you call this, this phenomenon? Well, I said it gave, it gave new meaning to the term capital flight. <laughs> capital uh, flight, which, yes. Which is a, a term we heard much of, say, uh, during the early years of François Mitterrand's presidency of France when he really did try to push the nation to a socialist direction and uh, uh, investment, uh, international investment just fled France. So in that sense, uh, we've, we've seen uh, uh, not investment as such, but the people in charge of investment fleeing Donald Trump. And you know, this, is, this is really a kind of watershed moment for the Republican Party, yeah. which is uh, still largely mumbling, uh, if that, uh, about Donald Trump. But, uh, you know, you wonder... Uh, what it would take, if anything, uh, you know, I mean, remember Trump said he could shoot someone in the middle of Fifth Avenue and that would be fine, no one could do anything. I mean, you know, in, in a certain sense, equating opponents of neo-Nazis uh, to the neo-Nazis, I think, is, is uh, you know, goes a little beyond shooting someone in the middle of Fifth Avenue, uh, uh, particularly when one of the uh, neo-Nazi or Klan people ran, you know, actually did kill someone in Charlottesville. Uh, so, you know, you wonder what it'll take the Republicans to uh, uh, exhibit, uh, you know, just, just even trace, uh, trace elements of a conscience and of, of some sense of what America, in theory, is supposed to be about. If you've just tuned in, we're speaking with Harold Meyerson of the American Prospect. Um, I, I saw that a professor at Georgetown's business school was quoted in the L.A. Times saying, generally it's a bad idea to align your brand with the KKK. You don't need a Ph.D. in marketing to arrive at that conclusion. Uh, that seems to be what the corporate CEOs have uh, concluded. But as you say, the Repu- most of the re- although the Republican leadership of both the House and the Senate has, has – uh, found it quite possible to denounce neo-Nazis and the Klan. Uh, A lot of Republicans have not, and that seems to be because the Republican base still seems to be sticking with Trump. The CBS uh, uh, poll released today uh, said that an overwhelming majority of Republicans think that Trump's uh, comments on Charlottesville were appropriate and, and correct. So as long as that is the case with the Republican voters, it's I think we should probably not expect much uh, many profiles and courage among uh, elected Republican officials. Probably not, but I think that opens the door for Democrats, given that, you know, Republicans are not exactly a majority in this country, Yeah, uh, uh, to appeal... Uh, to independents and Democrats and disgruntled individual Republicans, um, you know, uh, just on the uh, minimal program of, uh, of opposing a president who can't seem to figure out which was the right side in World War II. <laughs> oh, uh, you know, so, uh, so Trump's so. plan is seems to be defend the white supremacists, neo-Nazis, and uh, uh, conf- neo-Confederates, con- neo uh, what should our plan be? I see that you have a to-do list at the American Prospect. Yeah, I wrote up a to-do list today, and actually I put it in as a link uh, in the Kuttner piece, as long as everyone is uh, quite rightly reading Bob's piece. I thought, well, okay, here's the to-do list for uh, anti-Trumpers in the post-Charlottesville period. And, and one of the points I made is that, yeah, let's get rid of the Confederate monuments. But, you know, honestly, the vast majority of them are in the South. And if you live outside of the South, 
there aren't too many Confederate monuments to occupy one's attention. There are, however, uh, in in uh, older cities, uh, monuments to uh, soldiers who died fighting in the Union cause in uh, the Civil War, and a huge number of monuments to Americans who died fighting fascism in World War II. Uh, and it might be a good idea to have some political demonstrations around those. Uh, you know, uh, this is uh, uh, if uh, Trump can't tell uh, the difference between uh, the good guy, the good guys, and the bad guys in World War II. Uh, that that's I think a kind of uh, you know visually and uh, viscerally effective way to raise the issue. Uh, and if yes. you Nazis want to come protest, I would actually quite welcome. That. <laughs> They're invited. Uh, uh, and also on your uh, to-do list is uh, progressive elected officials uh, can take yeah, action. I mean, We've uh, just been uh, talking with Steve early about, about what's going on in Richmond, and he says there's a lot of other uh, cities and towns that progressives control. For instance, Los Angeles, New York, Chicago, Pittsburgh, Philadelphia. You yep. name it. I mean, c- cities are overwhelmingly Democratic yeah. right now. So uh, after, you know, given what's happened... And given the conduct of the president in the last week, uh, I would imagine uh, pretty much every major American city is due for an official resolution either calling for his uh, censure or or his impeachment. And there are a couple of states, like California and Massachusetts, that I could imagine doing that as well. I mean, you know, I mean, if nothing else, consider the thought of giving the president giving aid and comfort to our enemies in the foreign policy. That means the apparently the only nations uh, he uh, has affinity for are authoritarian ones. And in domestic policy, uh, you know, that uh, includes uh, hate groups and, uh, and, and, and such. So I would think both at the local level, at the state level, and there's a point that Democrats should raise in Congress, they should keep bringing this up. I mean, there is a censure resolution the Democrats will introduce in the House once Congress gets back into session. I think that's sort of appropriate for them to uh, bring up as, uh, you know, and uh, hear what their Republican colleagues have to say, uh, like, uh, you know, every seven or eight minutes uh, (laughs) that uh, either House is in session. So getting back to Trump here for a minute, he's been abandoned by corporate executives who have been the backbone of the Republican Party. Uh, The Trump's since 1896. Since 1896, yeah. <clears throat> the uh, Joint Chiefs of Staff have each issued statements contradicting uh, Trump on how white supremacy and neo-Nazis should be regarded. The leaders of the House, Republican leaders of the House and Senate, have issued very strong statements. What exactly is Trump's plan here? I I don't quite see where he goes next with this. I'm not sure plan and Trump uh, <laughs> yeah. rhyme. Yes, uh, I see what you mean. Uh, I mean, there's no question, you know, uh, uh, to a certain degree, he, he feels, uh, I think, rightly that a lot of his base is, is white nationalist, but that ain't enough to win, uh, uh, to win elections. And, uh, you know, but I mean, if you look at sort of the, the broader spectrum of, of what his uh, administration is doing in terms of voter suppression and deportation and whatnot, these are essentially white nationalist objectives. Uh, so you know it's being carried out uh, in a way uh, that uh, actually a number of mainstream Republicans uh, support, if there is such a thing as a mainstream Republican in this day and age. 
so, I mean, you know, he sees that A is his base, and B, I think, you know, uh, he believes his own nonsense. Uh, and, and, and actually, even when he doesn't believe it, as in, like, the birther stuff, he sees uh, no downside to uh, to voicing it. So it's partly dancing with uh, the the coalition that brung him, and I think it's partly his own sick and uh, racist impulses. Uh, do you think they that his uh, people can can uh, get him to try once again to, to uh, with infrastructure week maybe next week? <laughs> Good question. Uh, I I would think his people now just dread his appearing in public uh, with a microphone. Uh, I, I you know I mean there's all kinds of reports about uh, people in the White House just walking around stunned. I mean I, at a certain level I don't know why they sh- shouldn't have expected this, but uh, uh, I I would imagine there are a lot of people on the staff who are just despairing of ever getting this guy uh, on any message other than what's uh, sort of leaping out of his id. Yeah, well, they tried to get him to read from the teleprompter, and he did that a couple of days ago and was very unhappy, it turned out. He doesn't like being fed lines by his uh, staff. He wants to, uh, you know, express himself, uh, as he did on on, on Tuesday. And I, I think you're right that that's his number one um uh, priority. What uh, we just have one minute left here. Now, now that the American prospect has uh, made uh, the front pages of newspapers uh, around the world with its uh, interview with Steve Bannon, what's next for the prospect? <laughs> oh Lord! Uh, uh, we have your to-do list. We have your to-do list, and we have my to-do list. Actually, I have a very good piece that just went up about what. Uh, what went on in Durham, North Carolina, uh, where uh, some folks took the statue down. Durham is a city in North Carolina that wanted to remove Confederate monuments, but the Republican legislature uh, preempted the ability of cities to do that. And so uh, some activists resolved that impasse by uh, doing it themselves. Uh, you know, I mean, we're just going to be exploring this whole this whole landscape of uh, the intersection between, you know, I mean, it's the states that have laws, we'll have a piece on this next week, the states that have laws forbidding tearing down these statutes are also the states that uh, have laws uh, keeping cities from raising the minimum wage and so mm-hmm. on. So the, the opposition to uh, paid labor uh, in the old slave states kind of unites the racism and just everything rotten. So, you know, that's, that's the kind of stuff you'll get on our pages, www.prospect.org. Harold Meyerson in Washington. Harold, it's always great to have you on the show. And it's always great to be here, John. Thanks. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank my other guest, Joshua Green. He talked about Steve Bannon. His number one bestseller about Steve Bannon is called Devil's Bargain. We also spoke with Steve Early. His book about the progressive victories in Richmond, California is called Refinery Town. Thanks to our engineer, D'Angelo Jones. Thanks to our producer, Renee Reynolds. And special thanks for additional help on our Steve Bannon segment today from Albert Latuka. Our theme music is Ry Cooter's Mambo Sinuendo coming up at four tonight. This is happening Jerry quickly. Trump watches off next week of the fun drive. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. <laughs>